0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger Podcast, I'm your host as always Steve Hall and today we have a roundtable. We have myself, Dr. Pack and Milo Wolf, and we are discussing essentially the extremes that we see within the use of science and also I guess the hate against science and I kind of frame these as like the PubMed warrior and then the kind of bro scientist and then looking to kind of bring these people together, see that there's a grey area and a middle ground that ultimately will breed evidence-based practice and some of the ways that you can use science to your favor and also as a consumer of science how you can kind of see the red flags of people who should be very well educated and spreading a good message but maybe use it to their advantage and kind of deceive in many ways so we kind of jumped through this discussion and i think it was really valuable also talking about if you are considering further education higher education in terms of phd whether or not that is a choice that you you may want to make or may not want to make talking about the pros and cons so this was a really fun chat as always guys if you do enjoy this please share it with others subscribe like it give us a comment give us a review on the podcast platform that you're on we always appreciate that and we want the podcast to grow and flourish but without further ado let's get into the chat hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast today we have a um a roundtable I guess, uh, a discussion between two fellow, well one soon to be I guess with Milo PhD and uh, a fellow PhD, not a fellow PhD because I don't have a PhD. We're going to continue rolling this intro even though I've pretty much screwed it up but we have Dr. Pack and we have Milo Wolf back on the show, uh, both of who have been on the show recently. Pack was talking about deloads with me and obviously Milo has been talking about lots of kind of Uh, range of motion in regards to impacts on muscle hypertrophy but today we're going to take a different spin and that is related to PhDs which is why I brought it up and that is kind of this you kind of have uh, some crowds within the fitness industry I think where you have the guys who are like the PubMed warriors I guess they would be called and then you have the kind of anti-science crowd maybe like the the bro science kind of team bro science whatever it might be and I think both Milo and Pac have done a good job of kind of trying to find a middle ground to that and explain what that looks like to each side of those and realize like there shouldn't really be these camps more so that kind of gray area that we should all exist within to kind of get best outcomes and we'll probably dig into a little bit of what your experience has been like as well getting your PhDs and how useful you think that might be to someone who is kind of considering it as well if they're looking to get into I guess it depends uh, on many things on whether or not you'd advise someone to go down that route but I don't know, Pack. If we start with you uh, talking about these kind of extreme stances and uh, this kind of worshipping of science versus kind of ignoring it, and where you feel like people should be heading.
1: Yeah, I think I think it, um, the the whole idea of CAMS kind of stems back from the like the early evidence based days when being evidence based and and looking at science when science, especially in our field, was somewhat scarce. Um, was like a revolutionary, revolutionary new thing, especially with things like if it fits your macros and um, certain training uh, adjustments as well, and that sort of created the idea that it's either you know you're either science based or you're not. You're either the extreme um, if it fits your macros, sort of uh, looking at studies and uh, adjusting your training based on them uh, archetype, or you're the hey just train hard and eat clean, bro archetype. Um, but at the same time and especially in 2023 i think that being in either side of the spectrum doesn't doesn't make sense and you're essentially doing a disservice to yourself because there are limitations to just relying solely on experience as your main source of some, um in data or uh, the main the main source that informs your training or your Dieting decisions, and vice versa, relying solely on science or scientific data uh, to be to be more appropriate, um, also comes in with its uh, with its own limitations. And yeah, we often see uh, freaks on both uh, sides of the spectrum because science is something that. Is not perfect and is not meant to be the answer, but rather a step closer to the truth. And if you haven't either gotten a degree, and and I would say if you haven't gotten a degree under the right supervision and with the right mentors, you may not necessarily fully understand that. Uh, And if you haven't actually read research and analyzed research critically, um, you may also be under the uh, illusion that, hey, a paper says this and that, therefore, that's 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 the truth, and it's it's perfect. Um, so, and then on the, on the other hand, we have people who will have sort of a knee jerk reaction to anything that is slightly unorthodox or changes the way we've we've thought about things, and will just completely um, push science away and say, "Hey, we don't care about that. That was done." and whatever uh untrained individuals or yeah I'm a 100 kilo uh, experienced lifter that doesn't apply to me or yeah why are you overcomplicating this and uh, there should we shouldn't be really overanalyzing things um but as far as approaching training and nutrition goes you can you should be you should let both science and your own experience, or both personal and professional, if you're a coach. Uh, you should let both of those things inform your practice. I kind of, I'm now freestyling and I'm just saying words to just uh, <laughs> keep thinking about stuff. But I think that's all I had to say there.
0: No, I, I liked it, and I think it. The examples of like the extreme, if you fix your macros, and then the guys coming from clean eating, it kind of describes where I was, where my first kind of like getting into the nutritional practice was just like high protein, clean diet, that's the way to go. And I did that for years. And then I started learning more about macros and sort of if it fits your macros, I was like, no, 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 I can't be doing that. Surely not because you're so uh, dogmatic even in the ways that's kind of got your results that you don't want to see this kind of thing that maybe looks easier or different or is slightly uncomfortable and challenges your beliefs. But then I slowly incorporated it and I was like, that was probably my first like slight evidence-based kind of change to what i was doing in terms of like focus your macros versus just kind of clean foods and uh i'm actually interested i don't know if this is not necessarily a question i thought i had in mind but for milo and then maybe we'll go to pack what um drew you to i guess evidence-based or science-based kind of what drew you that direction because i think it's always interesting when i think about an archetype for like the PubMed warrior think about like a a kind of skinny kid behind a keyboard who's like i don't know that forever intermediate or whatever like to be as as mean as possible and then you have like the bro scientist like he's jacked like he trains hard but like clearly maybe not that intellectual um so i'm yeah i'm interested because i mean both of you, you i mean you lift weights
1: we try you we try we like- try <laughs> i didn't i didn't wear the glasses and i wore a t-shirt specifically to avoid <laughs> to to have that there
2: Yeah. So for me, I was that kid that you mentioned, the skinny kid who wasn't making any gains. So I think that partly drew me to it. Ultimately, I think what kind of made me stick with science over, say, um, more anecdotal evidence, let's say, is that ultimately science is a very, very powerful tool. Um, To use a bad metaphor, it's kind of like fire. You know, it has its risks, it has its dangers, you can misuse it and it can cause harm, right? Right. but at the same time, it can be used for a lot of useful applications. Um, so for me, it was a matter of well, if I try and apply certain techniques that get recommended to me in the gym or by other people to myself, it's really fucking difficult to tell whether or not something worked or didn't, right? Um, if we're talking about the effect, for example, of a certain exercise on results, how do you measure the results? Let's say it's muscle growth, right? Do you measure muscle circumference, like using a tape measurement? how do you measure that? How do you assess the impact of a certain training change or doing more sets or doing a different exercise or what have you on your results? Um, That can be extremely challenging. And in addition to that, if you do just look at yourself, you are prone to bias ultimately. Um, I'm not saying science isn't, but science can help minimize some of these issues as much as possible. And that also means that you don't have to go blindly on your own personal experience or a few people's individual experiences to make broader recommendations, right? Um, if you're talking about the average person and what might work for them, you're much better off going off studies that actually look at relatively average people. Um, does that mean that there aren't cases where if you're dealing with genetic outliers or extremely high performers, there are certain things that might work there that wouldn't work in studies? Absolutely, there are going to be cases like that, and that's potentially where some of the limitations of science come in. Um, but I think that science helps minimize noise, for example, right? Like if you make one change in your training, um, you're likely also going to be changing a lot of other things at the same time, just because you think, oh, this thing might work and that thing might work. And that introduces so much noise into your results and into your training that it becomes really difficult to infer causality within your training. Oh, I changed this exercise and thus saw growth. It's very difficult to tell that, especially because we're talking about small differences in likelihood. You know, you're not going to see, Revolutionary lat growth from changing from underhand pull downs to overhand pull downs. Certainly, on the scale of one person, you're not going to be able to tell, especially with the means of assessing progress that you have at your disposal as an individual. Like, ultimately, what do you have? Looking at pictures, is that even reliable? Is that even accurate as a means of looking at hypertrophy?
1: I don't know. Wait, you mean you mean to say that the adding uh, SLDLs instead of Romanian deadlifts is not what led to my back growing significantly more?
2: Significantly, hey, eh? big words. That's <laughs> another uh, another thing. Is that science can easily be misinterpreted. So, for example, for people who haven't really been around too much evidence or had have read too much evidence, um, they can quickly, for example, overinterpret the results of one study and be highly confident in whether or not those would extrapolate to the real world or whether that those results would replicate in another study, and that sort of stuff. Um, So I think there's a lot of pitfalls with science, but ultimately it has also a lot of advantages over just using your own personal experience or even looking at the personal experience of a few individuals or high performers. Because ultimately they are different people from you and there are bigger factors at play than, for example, the exercises being used or what have you. Like genuinely the impact of genetics alone on results is likely larger than any difference in training pretty much. Like as long as you're within a wide range of training variables, like for example, doing between say five and 20 sets per week. Genetics far outweighs the impact of say five sets versus fifteen sets a week. So yeah. even looking at a few individual experiences, it's not going to be enough to tell shit about how the average person responds to that. You know?
1: Can I Maybe. can I add something? Sorry, yeah. sorry, Steve. Um, I think it, it, there's also an issue with. Um, the word science in itself, because many bros or many people who, or who lift and are, you know, hardcore lifters, when they hear science, they imagine um, some undergraduate uh, student in a lab um, doing like a one arm um, sort of curl weird study design and getting a biopsies and doing something that is completely uh, different to what they're doing in the field but for example in the study that I'm helping out now here at uh, Lehman College it's they're just taking people putting them through extremely hard um, lower body sessions taking them to failure doing uh, deep squats doing leg extensions doing calf exercises and they're just then seeing if that uh, if, if a deload will will have an effect on them but their training is essentially super hard training that you, you'd also do in the real world but it's just a bunch of people doing the same thing and then seeing if that works. So I think the I think sometimes people will be like oh yeah it's just a study on the isokinetic dynamometer where they put a couple of uh, or a few a handful of untrained individuals and they think that that's all there is to science uh, when in reality even some of our studies are are essentially real world training just in a more controlled environment.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. I think a lot of people especially those who are <clears throat> slightly on the anti-science kind of side, they do look at, they think that's kind of, that's what they envisage envisioned the training studies to look like. And in reality, it's not always that way. And like you said, it's not perfect, but it's better than like just picking like random anecdotes because like you said, Milo, genetics play a huge role. And then when you don't even consider drugs, which are a lot, and including naturals, get their kind of training decisions informed or their nutritional decisions through like assisted athletes who aren't scientifically based and and they are more so on just anecdote and like what worked for them it's like well dude like whatever you're injecting is having larger effect sizes than the training that you're doing just like you said with the genetics and 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 that's a dangerous place to be pack were you also that kind of skinny nerdy kid that kind of wasn't getting results or did your route to science was that a little bit different
1: no, it's uh, I, I was I uh, was I've been skinny maybe for like a, a year in my life, and that was after I lost a lot of weight. I was a I was a chubby kid, um, but my road to to science I think maybe similar to, to yours. And this is something that we we've also talked about with Milo and, and others in the field is that we I came up as a as a quote unquote bro. I started lifting with a close friend of mine at school. It was all training to failure, and then I just started reading. Uh, in an attempt to better my own training. And I saw that, oh, okay, cool. It makes sense to also look at what the science has to say and what people that are um, educated, uh, and have actually studied the behind the scenes of muscle growth and strength. Uh, have to say, so it made sense to me to better inform my training, not just using what some guy in the gym said, but also looking at the scientific evidence. And then I slowly got into the um, to studying and pursuing an undergraduate degree, and so on and so forth. But it wasn't. I, I never made a like a one eighty turn where I went. Oh, okay, gym science. I still, you know, listen to people in the gym or other coaches, but it it just made sense to combine both and potentially place a bit more emphasis on the science side of things. Because like, you know, things like training frequency or training volume, you're not going to, looking at what the scientific evidence has to say carries more weight than what some guy will, will tell you based on his experience, which is just observing. And that's, that's the... The irony there people will always hate on observational data when it comes to science but then it's like oh but that coach has worked with so many athletes and he has observed this and i'm like okay, right the co-founding variables and the noise there is it's just it's just way too much to even jump to a conclusion like that
2: yeah and i think one thing i want to mention is one interesting thing that people often do is dichotomize anecdote and um study essentially like an anecdote, all well, anecdotes and data from a study. Ultimately they are kind of the same thing, but with a few key differences, right? In the case of anecdotes, we're talking about observations and we're also talking about observations in the case of data in the study. The difference is that in the case of a study, the researchers are trying their best to minimize confounding variables with anecdotes people are usually not really trying to minimize confounding variables and noise and variance between people. Moreover, um, not only do scientists try and minimize confounding variables, which then allows you to make, have greater certainty around how big of an effect does something have, how likely is it to actually have an effect, but also they actually try and look at as many people as they can for as long of a time period as they can. And that gives you a lot more certainty about how much of an effect does this have? How likely is it to be a true effect and not just noise? Whereas, if we're talking about anecdotes, oftentimes we're talking about what Dorian did. You know, ultimately that is one person. That is a relatively um, short time frame, and there are a lot of confounders. And so, I think it's important not to completely dichotomize um, data from science and anecdotes. But it's important to recognize that data from studies and from science is generally just way higher quality. So unless you have a huge amount of anecdotes that support a certain thing, tightly controlled data from studies will provide you with a more robust estimate of how big of an effect does something have and the more robust uh, degree of confidence in whether or not that actually exists.
1: Sorry. Uh, we're now uh, monopolizing this, but you mentioned Dorian and I want to be, I want to say this on air. So this is from a Dorian Yates post about his back growth. And he says, I typically perform pullovers, strength uh, pull downs, barbell or dumbbell rows, cable rows, and then deadlifts or hyper extensions. And this is for the, for the deadlifts uh, for back growth uh, crowd. Sorry. Had had to be done. Had to be said on air
0: so he he needed the deadlifts there at the end of his session
1: it, it, but he said either deadlifts or hyperextensions as long as you're True. hitting your erectors uh some way and that, that's been what Milo and i have been uh, talking about quite a bit anyways i think
2: literally for years we've had this discussion and <laughs> keep seeing it and then we just keep he- kept hating on it because it doesn't make a ton of sense no i know uh for every you can i mean
0: because i see it very commonly where it will be said like "Oh, when the guys turn to the back of the stage the judges will know who deadlifts and me and Pascal Litchie just said this today in the improvement season I was like for the number of like for every guy that deadlifts who turns to the back there'd be another guy who has a terrible back and no density within his back they're also deadlifts and there'd be another guy who doesn't deadlift and has an amazing back and like huge thick glutes and erectors it's like it's not the just the deadlift <laughs> like there's so many other things
2: going on there it's you could uh... be
1: a proficient good morninger <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> yeah No, steve i think you should just accept that success leaves clues ultimately <laughs> and i think that's where you probably don't want to be on either end of the extreme right if you adopt that stance of exclusively success leaves clues or you know the people are doing their deadlifts it'll show on stage you know we'll be able to tell them apart um if you take that extreme stance, you're definitely missing out on a lot of stuff. Likewise, though, if you misinterpret science and only look at science, you will also fall into some wacky positions, right? Like, especially if there's limited evidence on a topic, but you're not super well-versed in interpreting science, you may think, oh, you know, there's been one study on this topic, for example, a supplement, right? Like, I'm pretty sure there's a new supplement out there right now with a Latin name that I can't even pronounce um, that has a couple studies showing an increased testosterone. Um, and it's the sort of thing where, if you don't really know how science works, you might be tempted to say, "Oh well, uh, I like the idea of science. I don't really know how this works, but let me base my understanding on topic on just one study and apply this to my training." And if you do that, you may actually end up in a kind of similar position to a lot of uh, bros in the gym, where they apply a lot of gimmicks that get recommended to them and without really giving it much thought first. You might use this supplement because it has one study behind it. You might use this technique in your training because it has one study behind it that kind of shows it did something. And you're, I remember talking to bros in the gym like five years ago and they would tell me what supplements they were taking and they were just taking fucking everything, you know? Um, and I think if you misinterpret science, ironically enough, you end up in a similar place. It's a, it's a really
0: good point in terms of the limitations of anecdote. You kind of said this where the number of times you'll speak to someone in the gym and they'll be like oh I did this one thing and it it blew me up or whatever and quite often it's supplements like that used to always be the thing everyone would just ask like any jack dude oh so what supplements are you taking like completely forgetting about the importance of sleep nutrition training like what supplements because clearly that's the thing that's doing it and a lot of people actually think like oh yeah I took this one pre-workout whatever it is it's like my session was just so much better it's like wasn't like the eight nine hours of sleep you got the night before or like the carbs you had pre-workout or like these other details and factors like we're so poor at knowing what caused what to happen to our physique and body because there are so many confounders and that's why you need something like science to be like actually it was that so you could have someone like dorian who i'm not saying he said this but he might be like oh yeah my back was built through deadlifts it's like Well, you're saying that, but actually you don't know that that was the thing that was doing it for you there.
2: It's especially amusing with supplements because there is data showing that um, with commonly available supplements by not super trustworthy companies, A, the dosage is actually very far beyond what the label says. So you may actually be like misdosing it and claiming that you still get good results. like You might be underdosing it, Um, but also sometimes there can be contamination, even with PDs so at that point you're talking about not just noise from training variables and nutrition variables and sleep variables etc you're also talking about noise from the supplement itself which is a bit of a mind fuck to think about
1: yeah at, at the same time a lot of uh a lot of the bros that will tell you hey I did this and it worked uh, it, it's uh, like they, they're also doing all the the absolute basics and fundamentals Absolutely right. So they're sleeping well. They're either in a calorie surplus or at least they're eating well for their respective goal. They're training with a very high intensity of effort, and they're performing a variety of exercises with relatively good technique, whatever that means. So it's like it's very, and that's where science comes in, and it can help you to actually know whether that one thing that you changed made a difference. Because there will be a group of people that will be doing a very controlled, will be following a very controlled training program with just that one variable manipulated. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. We see that in in, in the gym that we go to in Southampton we, with Milo as well, where you know the, there's guys there that, that are very enthusiastic about training, but not necessarily enthusiastic about learning about training, which I don't get. And again, that I came up that way. I was I was somebody who just loved training, wanted to learn more about my own training, and it's like they're training super hard, doing a bunch of volume they will, you know, advance to something or do like um, a certain type of drop set or special sort of uh, Maya rep, whatever set. And it's like, yeah, man, this has been working really well. And I'm like, can you can you really say that? But at the, at the end, does it really matter? That's, that's the night. I'm going to throw a, a ranch here and say, hey, if the placebo effect is strong enough and they're pushing their training hard, I, I would not advise against it. But at the same time, making a recommendation based off your own experience and presenting it as, yeah, this is hard data. I think that's also wrong and can mislead a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, <clears throat> where I was thinking about these anecdotes and how, how can people use like listening or just seeing other people training how can we kind of use that to our benefit in a more scientific kind of way and i I tend to think of like okay so look at these 10 jack dudes what are they all doing that's somewhat similar like what principles maybe can i draw from what they're doing here and like like you draw back to the scientific principles of like right we need to be doing enough work hard enough long enough recovering and eating and it's like okay so the the specific nuances you can't tie those away from those anecdotes and then maybe science can draw some of those for us
2: yeah and it's funny as well because uh, to go back to the dichotomy between anecdotes and data from studies um, nowadays there are a few widows who are trying to kind of bridge that gap on the spectrum So I'm thinking of Eric Helms and, uh, Brian Borstein who are doing sort of like, for example, Brian Borstein is only training one arm directly and has been doing so for six months now and seeing if there's any results, obviously the measurement method of hypertrophy may not be ideal. And, um, with Eric Helms, I think he's doing the stretch protocol from the Warnicke study where he's having one of his calves be stretched for an hour a day. I think for a long time, actually, I think he's been doing this for a while now, unless he's gotten the results back already. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting to see that there's people out there nowadays who are kind of trying to find a middle ground between the anecdote and uh, data from evidence. Obviously, we're still talking about N equals one, so it's not great, but it is interesting to see. And I guess that's the sort of situation where because you have another limb to compare it to, so for example, comparing the left calf to the right calf, um, you can actually draw, at least about yourself, a decent inference, right? Like if, for example, for Brian, only training one arm he saw no difference at all over six months and the rest of his training remains similar, like as in, you know, same compounds for everything, et cetera. Um, He can probably draw a decent inference about himself that direct arm work at this point in his career, if there's no change, for example, between the two arms, may not actually grow him much or at least not detectably, which um, that's kind of a key point because depending on the measurement method, it might be difficult to detect small changes, especially this deep into a training career. Um, But it is interesting that nowadays you can kind of, you could do that, but then it's sort of thing where, there is the opportunity cost of instead doing what you think is best already based on the evidence. And that's where evidence can come in handy, right? Um, Because it doesn't leave you to figure out what works on yourself over time. It cuts out that experimentation and trial and error that you would otherwise have to go through. Like, for example, in this case, let's say there was no evidence. Brian had no idea what what would work. Um, Maybe he would do this experiment first before starting actually training to see what works, right? But because we have evidence to rely on and in all likelihood, you, as an individual, Steve, you're not that different from the average person by definition, okay. right? Like, well, what about me? Also, likely not that different from the average person. Maybe a bit balder. That's about it. Um, <laughs> I'm not bald. I shave. I, that's, a, that's,
1: a, that's a reference for for only a few.
2: <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yeah, so the evidence can serve as a nice starting point because in no likelihood, you're not that different, from the, different from the average person. And you don't have to go through that much trial and error.
0: And something I do want to talk about is, uh, I think this was from you, Pac. Uh, and I, uh, by the way, that was well said, uh, Milo. I think that's like really helpful for people to understand that further. But um, this was the, the point you made, Pac, was sounding scientific doesn't equal scientific. And you kind of had the science uh, versus the scientist. And I guess you guys as scientists, like um, both of you are going to have PhDs, I guess it could frustrate you even more than someone like myself who I don't have the PhD. I maybe, I don't see it as easily and pick it out. I probably do to quite a high level, but not maybe as much as you guys where people are like using science to further their case. And it's like, that's, they're actually not being scientific in nature.
1: Yeah. I think, I think you could be also somebody who has a PhD depending on what the acronym PhD stands for.
2: <laughs>
1: uh I don't know only I think only um a few people know anyways I digress again but um yeah I think it's a, it's a big thing in our field man and especially with not just evidence based uh, practitioners but just practitioners that are trying to make themselves sound much more scientific about something than they the that than it than it needs so like a true scientist and when you start writing um scientific papers. Like it, it really goes away from the the typical school method or undergraduate method where you're just trying to add as many words as possible to a sentence to make it sound as as extreme as, as uh, complicated as possible. It's like you have to be as straightforward as possible. So in in, in, in our field you often hear a lot of jargon uh, and a lot of absolute statements sprinkled with words like data, or the literature, uh, as well as, you know, saying, uh, periodization, for example, when talking about planning your training, periodization is not, uh, is a legit concept, but it can be used as a bit of a jargon, jargon word and, um, can often lead to people thinking that, whoa, science-based training is this sort of super complicated, uh, venture. And you, you have to like really, really know your stuff when in reality it's just regular training regular hard training with uh, a few variables optimized and an open mind to change when new evidence comes out so whenever you see somebody making things extremely complicated unless they are you know on a podcast talking with other scientists or it's a really complex issue maybe looking at hypertrophy at the molecular molecular level when it sounds extremely complicated, um, I think you ought to be somewhat skeptical, especially if the goal if 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 the goal of the the, the podcast or the post that you're reading is to inform you if that makes sense.
2: And the interesting and this,
1: thing, oh go sorry. for it. no no no, you go for it.
2: You flatter me. Um and the interesting thing as well, and the sad thing is that I think generally relatively well-intentioned scientists who are doing research who are very knowledgeable, who have good intentions aren't the best necessarily at science communication, right? So they may use too much jargon to really effectively communicate the findings of the literature as it stands to people. And then on the other end of the spectrum, this very much opens the door for people who have less, fewer scruples about communicating science effectively and with integrity, um, and more in it, for example, for cash, essentially. Like uh, for some reason, I'm thinking of Liver King. Um like you can definitely use science as a, a fortifying point in your argument, right? Like you can say, oh, science has shown, even though you're not necessarily communicating with science or there is no science, you know? Um, and so I think it's a bit sad that sometimes good scientists are unable to communicate their points effectively. And that opens mm. the door for uh, science misinformation or miscommunication or what have you. Um, and it's something that honestly, nowadays I think is about as important as doing the actual science because ultimately, you know, science for the most part is meant to be applied in some way. Um, especially when we talk about sports science or even nutrition, like, you know, people want to get jacked, people need to eat and be healthy, et cetera. And so if we're just doing the science, but we're not communicating the results effectively, then that's a big, big issue.
1: And that's what I was talking with uh, Brad Schoenfeld here about because it, it used to be, and I think it still is, a bit of a taboo to have um, either a following or be sort of, um, you know, online celebrity with huge quotation marks as far as science goes. Because it's like, yeah, like real scientists will, real scientists will look at you and be like, yeah, you're just, you know, you're mainstream now, or you're you're taking the 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 serious science that we're doing and you're simplifying it, but. At the same time, the other extreme, especially in our field, which, as Milo said, is applied. If we're doing a bunch of studies, and nobody as, and sometimes even the scientists themselves, because you're not like, if you're if you're working as a researcher and you're working full time, and you know most researchers will be also at an age where they probably have a family, you're not doing a journal sweep, uh, or you're not looking at thirty five hundred uh, journals every month to see what what new study came out. So us. Uh, Putting that out there, even though for some people it may be a bit taboo, is is very important because then it may I- impact future research and also uh, allow people to know their stuff. One one of my clients who's a who's a PhD uh, who who's a PhD and does research in hypertrophy in the, on the on the molecular level, like some of the extremely cool stuff that they're doing, which is extremely complicated, and I, I you know we're not qualified to necessarily assess. Like the only reason I I would know about that stuff is. By her putting it out there, which you know we were also talking about, and she was like, "Yeah, we need to do a better job of doing that because their research can then inform our research." That makes sense. I took it a level a level deeper, but um, science communication, I think, is is very important. And it's it we're it's twenty twenty three now. We're not in the age where it's just posting something on Facebook or even a blog post is enough for people to know about it. Nobody cares. Like us making even the memes and the podcast, I mean, you're, you're doing a fantastic job at giving people a platform to do that, uh, is important, not just for individuals who want to follow the practical applications, but for science itself. And as long as it's done in a non-cringe way, you know, I'm not saying, hey, let's do TikToks. I'm, okay. Even that could be, that could be okay <laughs> in some cases. But... If it
2: works, man, more power to you, if you want <laughs> That's true. That's true.
1: We're not Topless on TikTok, videos though.
2: now. <laughs>
3: Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger.
1: Hey, look, a fat, hairy, bald, Greek man talking about a study. (laughs) Report. (laughs) (laughs)
0: but i i think it's i can definitely see how it's challenging because again like social media actually is mostly entertainment whereas like science is i mean that it's science it's like meant to be formal it's like respected entertainment like like they kind of don't gel together very well so i think it's really hard to to kind of ride that line someone who comes to mind who does a good job is uh, bill campbell dr bill campbell who i've just recently interviewed like with his posts because uh, he basically just like questions and then like gets people to answer them and i i think that's a really kind of unique way of doing it I'm, it's awesome to have seen that that's kind of grown because people are inherently lazy about things and i don't know they see a post from someone like andrew huberman that says don't know if you breathe this certain way you'll get rid of your hiccups and they are just remember that or whatever it is and they like utilize those methods and it's like he hasn't even like that might not even have a reference for it but it's dr andrew huberman and he sounds really smart so i'm going to go with that and this is where you get into tricky situations where people take science too far even if they have like legitimate expertise in a certain area they then try and explore that in other routes because now they're respected and maybe that goes to their head a little bit.
1: That's a good example for the for the previous point about sign sounding scientific and being scientific. Because being scientific, oftentimes, depending on the the subject and the level of evidence that exists there, can be boring. It's not sexy to say, "Hey, we don't really know." There's a lot of co-founding variables. Research is limited. There's uh, uh, research that uh, contradicts each other, and. I haven't heard I haven't listened to much of uh, the Huberman uh, stuff but and I know that he's probably a net positive to to the industry but there are some claims out there I saw one video talking about hey the perfect amount of time you need to exercise to burn fat and it was if you don't know science it sounds super scientific and it's like whoa this is a, it's all like measured to a T, and you got to do 90 minutes of this heart rate uh range and that's what's going to lead to this and that and, and big words and but in reality if you do know you're like eh, not 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 really which okay it's not a bad thing More more people will exercise but for a lot of people it may also create that idea that wow it's this is complicated and if I don't if I don't get my 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 training uh, parameters straight, I'm not going to see optimal results. When in reality, uh, we can even just say, "Hey, make sure you're active and train hard." For people that just want to get fit and improve their yeah
2: quality and of life. To be honest, regarding science communication, honestly, <laughs> I can't even really blame um,
1: scientists there. for
2: not doing a great job. You know, like. Science communication in itself is a skill. It needs to be developed. And scientists, they're running studies. Running studies, especially in sort of training studies, for example. Let me tell you, shit is time consuming. It is it's soul draining, even. Um, so you don't necessarily want to, you know, finish the day at 6 p.m. or whatever and go and figure out a way to communicate your research findings in an attractive way that will, you know, resonate with people and actually grab eyes. It's a lot easier to just sort of write um, a blog post on a website that no one will ever read, unfortunately. Um, And so I think it's the sort of thing where scientists aren't really often incentivized nowadays to communicate research very well. And it's an additional responsibility, additional skill to learn on top of, you know, running studies, knowing how to analyze data, um, having responsibilities with the university as far as teaching goes and shit like that. So it's not easy. And I think that means ultimately that as a consumer of information, in the evidence-based fitness community, in life in general, if you're consuming any media, I think having some critical thinking and like some background in sports science, for example, can come in helpful in that sense.
1: Mm. Sorry, just to add add a tiny bit there. And there's a misconception because science is held so is regarded so highly in society. And when you say, you know, PhD or doctor or researcher, like, or lecture or even lecturer like uh, whenever you tell somebody I'm a lecturer at a university, it's an instant, whoa, you are, you know, the epitome of um, making it as far as life goes. But at the same time, a lot of science like science and academia is not a, a route where you're balling out and you're making tons of money. You're not getting funding for studies that interest us. That's very, very rare. And that's why I have a huge respect for what the guys over here at Lehman College are doing, because they're running a lot of projects just for the, the love of the sport. And at the same time, as I previously said, a lot of scientists, uh, they're peak of their careers or when they're producing the most results, they're in an age where they have a family. um, They have super demanding uh, schedules at their universities as far as teaching and and, uh, chasing grants and chasing this and chasing that. So People often have this misconception that you know scientists are there and they're super comfortable and it's all chill and yeah running a study is is just a, a matter of saying I'm going to do the study but it's much more complicated and it's, it's it leaves much less space for extra activities than people really, uh, could, uh, know, no, think
0: i know uh as an example that the listeners would know of you obviously you guys know dr mike where he obviously was a lecturer and he was like at a college for a while and he left that to invest more into rp and i mean i don't think that i don't know if you were to look at their youtube following at that time to where it is now it's probably like tenfold and it's completely exploded and that just goes to show like where he was putting his time and he's now reaching more people. So clearly he made that kind of decision, right? I can educate at this kind of college or whatever and kind of reach this many students, or I can go grow our YouTube to hundreds of thousands and reach way more people. And uh he's obviously developed that kind of skill set to be able to go between and um yeah, it's just, I guess you have to make like, <laughs> to, to use the term of MRV, you've only got so much like capacity that you can put towards various resources if you're like even as an online coach for me, like if I'm putting all this time towards podcasting and producing content, my Instagram to grow at the optimal rate, but I've got my client work, I only have so much time in the day that I can do various things. So I completely see that with like some of the researchers doing this where they just simply don't have the time or like you said, the incentive to to. Kind of really try and communicate it on a, in a large way and that is why i have this podcast in many ways like to try and get it further out there but even for me like discovering some of these guys like it can be like challenging because they have such even like hard to find they may even not have a social media and that's how i'm trying to yeah. discover them or get in contact
1: yeah and names and names in our field that we regard as like household names as far as scientists go the majority of average gym goers have no idea who they are and also, Milo and I exist just so so it's out there. We are coaching full time. We also have our, our a separate business uh, building an app. Uh, I'm doing. I'm I'm uh, the editor at uh, a research review by 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 Lay Norton. And the science is, I mean, obviously, the the studies Milo is writing now are part of his PhD. But a lot of all the the other studies that will come out from our end are because we love science. There's there's very uh, little direct, at least. Uh, Financial benefit uh, to to those studies, and it's just for the love of the sport. Just because many people not know, and they will assume, oh, these guys are at some university, getting all this funding and all this to to run cool studies on hypertrophy and strength. When the behind the scenes is much more, hey, rise and grind than than people realize.
2: Hundred percent, and also like a common common criticisms leveraged at training studies or intervention studies. You know, running ten weeks with people coming in twice a week, three times a week, what have you. Um, I think lack an understanding of how much work it actually takes and how little you're rewarded for actually doing those studies, right? Like as Pac mentioned, we're not out here getting funding for these studies. Like I don't really have funding for my PhD. I got some funding from Renaissance Priorization actually, full credit where credit due. But broadly speaking, resistance training intervention studies, um, you're not getting funding to run them. If you're looking at hypertrophy and strength specifically, especially for general health stuff, yeah, you could as part of like a public health grant but generally you're not getting any funding. You're having people in two to three times a week for say six to 12 weeks, only then for someone online to tell you, Hey, why wasn't that study six months long? And it's like, well, I did it as a labor of love. You know, um, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm not really like universities don't really look at you and say, Oh, okay. But how many resistance training studies have you done? They don't look at that when they try and promote you usually. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's more work than people realize, especially within um, exercise science as opposed to sort of public health. And it's uh, less rewarding or uh, less lucrative as well than people realize. So that's worth keeping in mind. Uh, what, next time you see a study and you're about to say, hey, why didn't this have 200 people in the study?
1: like the like the delo study that the, I'm helping out with here at, at Lehman College led by Max Coleman uh, and it's Brad Schoenfeld's group essentially running the study they have i'd say eight uh, at least at least six but you know close to 10 uh, in, uh, students master students helping out with data collection um uh, around 50 subjects coming into the lab 3 days a week to be put through uh, hard resistance training sessions, and that's another criticism that yeah they didn't train hard enough. Like they are training, they're definitely training hard enough. And to coordinate that, if you and and that's because Brad is somebody who loves doing the 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 research. He's not required to to run these these uh, cool studies, but like in order for that study to run, and it's a study on deloads, which is essentially nine weeks long. One group is going to train super hard for four weeks, uh, take a deload, then continue training for four weeks. The other group will just train throughout the whole nine weeks, I can already see people saying, oh yeah, this, it, it, it wasn't perfect. And uh, in the real world, you know, not everybody will need a deal here and there, but like the logistics behind running such a study, especially in any other environment that the one here where there's a ton of enthusiastic people about this. And there's somebody also giving them the, the incentive to run these studies with, with, you know, getting them out there and, and publication and so on and so forth. Like, it's, it's insane. And a lot of universities, even on the PhD level, you'll see PhDs who will finish their PhD with not many publications because they don't have a supervisor that will create that environment. And even in our own university in the UK, the if, if we didn't take the lead or initiative on, on running studies and projects and systematic reviews and this and that, or nobody, um, nobody, nobody from the university aside from our respective uh, supervisors would would actually say, hey, Milo, Milo Pack, come and we'll give you undergrad students to help you with data collection or the lab or this and that. Sometimes it's it's even the opposite.
2: It's
0: kind of crazy when you put it like that because the incentives just aren't there. It's like all like almost a, a personal pursuit and passion. I guess some people could say you're playing the long game, like with Milo. It is, it is the your, long game. Your PhD and eventually that's gonna lead to you being able to, I don't know have more clients, charge more, whatever. And and maybe there is some to that, but like to the level you're taking it, it, probably you could make more money, especially in the short term, but even potentially longer term, if you just decided, right, I'm just gonna go into
1: like social media and spend my time yeah. coaching more people. Absolutely. As soon as you have the, sorry, as soon as you have the credentials, uh, so as soon as Milo finishes his PhD, and Mike is a really good example of that. Mike is not there. Um, and I'm not saying that as a, as a bad thing. It, Mike Israel has his PhD and he's published a few papers and will be involved in some publications. But you know he's done enough as, as far as science goes for the, the layman or, or and even you know people with degrees who continue to do science to be like, okay, the guy has done a PhD, has published some research. Nobody's going to tell... Milo or myself, hey, guys, why do you only have 20 publications and not 85, you know, especially after finishing a PhD? So, yeah, Milo. 100%. Uh, you. I do think with um, further education, for example, to sports
2: science, as you mentioned, there is a huge opportunity cost. So as much as I might sometimes recommend, oh, you know, if you're really interested in sports science or coaching at a high level, you might want to consider getting an undergrad or even a master or even a PhD. Um. I do think the opportunity cost is not to be underestimated because we're not just talking about, say, tuition fees, right? Which can definitely add up. Like in the UK, for example, for an undergraduate degree in sports science, you're talking thirty thousand pounds, or but maybe thirty-five thousand dollars in tuition fees alone. That's excluding like accommodation and other expenses. Um, But then on top of that, you also have the huge opportunity cost of time invested, right? We're talking about years of your life. Like right now, if I wasn't doing my PhD, I would have an extra. Eh, probably like 20 or 30 hours a week, you know, that I could probably use. Um, And I could use that to spend more time on social media, make better posts, um, do that sort of stuff. So yes, there is definitely a payoff in terms of credibility um, at the end of it. Like if you have a PhD, I think generally people value your opinion more or take you more seriously, et cetera. Um, But I think the opportunity cost is not to be underestimated. And one thing I think people can fall into and to be honest, this is something I've seen Andrew Huberman, for example, kind of fall into is um when people take you seriously or see you as a credible source or someone with authority on a topic, um, they will generally also take your opinion on other matters that you might not be as qualified to speak about very seriously. And that's where it's important as an academic, as a scientist, as someone with integrity, to not overextend. You know, mm. if you don't have much confidence on the topic. Say so. If there is not much evidence to support your stance, say so. Um, The reason I'm very comfortable talking about range of motion and muscling, for example, is because I think I'm amongst the people who know the most about this topic. And so if there's anyone who should probably talk about it, it's probably me, right? But then with other stuff, generally, unless I know my stuff, I'll definitely be more reserved. Like even within sports science, even within lifting, even within hypertrophy research, there are topics where I'll be like, yeah, I, I don't really know, you know, like I couldn't tell you. So when someone gets a big following or gets seen as someone with authority, it's important to say, Hey, I don't have much um, knowledge in this area. I'm not qualified to speak on this rather than say, okay, well, let me speak on everything and anything at once and give my take and make it seem as though, because I have a PhD in this topic, I know everything else about every other topic. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's not how you should conduct yourself as someone with a PhD. And I kind of think that the PhD process or studying in general, should and usually does teach you that um humility like because you spend so much time on a single topic or on a single field even um generally by the end of it you should know that all right i know a lot about this stuff that i didn't know before i realize how much depth there is here how much breadth there is here that means that i can't really speak on anything else right like if i realize how complex things can get i shouldn't really be speaking about anything else as if i i, I really know my stuff um and that can also i think that alone can help you Pick your sources a lot more carefully. Like that fact alone that you understand how much goes into knowing something quite well, that can make you a bit more skeptical, a bit more of a critical thinker about what people will tell you and how to evaluate information sources. So, I think there are definitely pros to um, getting higher education in sports science, no doubt. But I think that it's a a decision with a big opportunity cost, and it should be considered carefully. And I think if you do go that route, be careful not to overextend beyond what you're qualified to speak about.
1: Yeah, and Greg knuckles had made a had uh, I think posted on social media uh, about how many people click on the citations on a stronger by on each stronger by science article and like almost nobody does so imagine imagine you being a, a PhD with a large following so large following that that by itself equals credibility PhD especially for the lay person and in certain cultures it's like wow well, you know everything and unless you're making it an extremely unorthodox any extremely unorthodox claims, and you just sprinkle the world's literature, or there's data, or whatever. You people are not going to be like, oh, "Okay, let me do a systematic review now," and or let me just uh, open up PubMed and try and find all the studies on the topic or any systematic review and see if that makes sense. So there comes a lo- there's a lot of responsibility that comes with great power. Comes great responsibility. <laughs> Revive stronger. <laughs>
0: Uh, but I think that's really well said and I think uh, you can actually use that as a consumer of science or, or like this, when you're looking at things if you see someone who is openly talking about their knowledge deficits and like maybe referring you to someone else which I've seen actually that happens a few times with some people like I, I love that because that proves to me that they're not just like I don't know They there's some ego attached to it you know when you have to have an answer to everything and sometimes like I see myself wanting that like i don't know with a client or something it's just like actually i need to like not say anything now i'll go away research it come back to you or like direct you to another resource because you're completely right milo like it should be the fact that like when you learn like you go through the dunning-kruger kind of like you just realize how much there is not to know and that can be i mean that normally like can be debilitating it can stop you like in your tracks like talking about things but i think like you said, pack. When you've got a large following, people trust you. They give you props all the time. It can be very easy to like, just feel like, oh man, I am the man. Like I am, like I do know this, and I don't know. You kind of, uh, was, I don't know what the the saying is, but like you eat your own stuff up, and you're like lapping it up, and you just want to keep going down that route. So, I think that is something we're gonna to have to keep you both accountable to.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Eric Helms had touched on that back in the day when uh, on one of the Iron. I'm not going to mention the competition on not another <laughs> podcast, but uh, the fact that you know when you get a PhD and you are out there and science and followers and, and this and that, some people will come at you, and you know on one hand it's it's a compliment that they will be like, oh yeah, you're Doctor Pack the old. And on the other hand, I always feel. Uncomfortable. I'm like, bro, I don't I don't know everything. Yeah, I did my PhD on the minimum dose. Uh for strength. We are in the trenches as far as science goes, and we're keeping up with the literature on a variety of topics, but there's a difference between keeping up with the literature and being an expert in like, let's say, recovery methods. And I mentioned to Milo before before we jumped on, hey, maybe we can talk about that. And he's like, Yeah, I don't feel like uh my you know, I'm up to am up to speed with all the latest research, and I, I think it's 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 important for people to also realize that don't treat us uh, like all-knowing beings, or because we're not. And like that pressure sometimes is a bit like, yeah, I gotta be super careful what I say here, and I gotta also always throw the disclaimers, which I do. But yeah,
0: yeah, and I think that's. Uh, It's just, yeah, it just reiterates how uh, important it is to understand, like, again, the limitations of scientists themselves, and like, you've already listed out the limitations of science. And it's, it's just funny to think how many limitations there are within science, yet people don't seem to understand that anecdote has even greater, like, insurmountable amounts, greater limitations to it. But they don't seem to put it to the same kind of level of standard, like you said, Pack with the the D load study where you're looking at people like uh, I forget what it's called observational. Is that what it was called? Kind of that that D load study. Then like, but they don't kind of hold anecdote to the same standard for
1: for whatever reason. So uh, I think that's been a really useful discussion yeah like our podcast last time about the deload interview study where like i said multiple times hey this is the first study to look at the concept it's just the base and it was essentially the ideal anecdote uh, source of evidence because like oh what do the best coaches in the world think this is what they think and then there was a guy commenting and saying yeah but it's just deload it's just an interview study and i'm like yeah we, we said that it is just a, an interview study but at the same time, it, as far as anecdote goes it's essentially anecdote packaged really well together and it's just a base for more research to come out nobody's saying take that and and run with it for the rest of your life but yeah anyways i'm uh for for
0: things like that like deloads or peak weeks where there's been very limited like data collected from that like i could see anik like having that sort of like anecdote packaged up from the best, like from Cliff Wilson, from 3DMJ, from like all the best coaches who are peaking their athletes to stage. Like I could see that would be an invaluable resource because that's essentially, I mean, a lot of these coaches like Cliff Wilson, we have at our like ebook ultimate guide to to contest prep, like the peak week part of that. Like it's like, there's some science, but you're kind of like, you're having to pull from mechanistic data from like uh, cyclists or like carb loading or whatever. And you're trying to kind of pull from there and, Uh, Like we don't have like peak, many, like we don't have many like peak week studies, same with deloading. So like to poo poo on that is very short sighted, but I I can see why people, it's an easy target.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's okay.
0: I don't know if you guys had anything more you wanted to say surrounding people who are interested in pursuing like a PhD. I know you kind of mentioned there are kind of costs and benefits. I guess it's something as an individual, you have to to make that decision for yourself is there anything for you guys that made it clear that you did want to go down that route where you're just like yes i wanted to do this or equally did did either of you have any regrets or anything you do differently
1: um a supervisor was a huge it it was and is a huge point for anybody wanting to get into a phd i my supervisor uh, james Steele, doctor associate professor dr james Steele, phd uh, fhcsca whatever the fellowship of a higher education title is. Um, he was a, a big inspiration in getting into a PhD. And, and so was my mother who, who did a PhD. But having a supervisor like him um, made the process much, much better. So if you're looking at doing a PhD, don't do a PhD for the sake of doing a PhD, just so you can say you did a PhD. Because especially if you're not in an environment that uh, is a bit more, you know, Open-minded as far as uh, approaching study design goes, and um, and if you don't have the the right guidance, it can it can take up to like it can take multiple years. Uh, If you're doing it full time, you may not depending on your study design, you may not be able to have a full time job, and it can have an effect on your mental uh, health and quality of life in general. But just to, to back off a bit, if you really really uh, like a certain topic and you want to take your education further and you believe that um, a certain topic is something that will uh, is so interesting to you that you'd like to do a PhD, then pursue that, but make sure you find uh, a university and a, an environment that will support you in doing that. And if you see any huge red flags from the get-go, it may be worth reconsidering. But I'd, I'd also like to say that a PhD should be done if you th- want to further you know continue doing research or have one foot in academia or at least consider those points i'm not saying you have to but you know if you have a masters and you want to be a science communicator and you want to be a coach and maybe spending those extra 3 to 5 to maybe even 10 years doing a phd versus working on your brand or your content or your whatever maybe it's not worth it
2: yeah. What I'd say is generally you want to pick your researchers or your supervisors and not so much your university, right? Yeah. Um, Who you're doing your PhD under will determine to a large extent your experience, I think. So you can go to a generally good university for a PhD and not have a great experience because the researchers that are the supervisors that may not necessarily have the same interests as you, or may in fact tell you that, oh, we don't have the facilities needed for you to do this sort of study in the first place. So I think picking the right researchers and speaking to them beforehand is really important. The second thing to consider before you say, okay, I'm gonna do a PhD is keep in mind doing a PhD is gonna teach you a lot about science in general, but it's also gonna give you a very, very, um, very narrow field of expertise, right? Realistically, you're spending three years or five years or even more um, learning a lot about one topic and contributing to the evidence on a topic that can be super gratifying. You know, it can be a really good experience. And I think if you have a deep interest in a topic, that alone can make it worth it sometimes. But um, from an opportunity cost perspective and from a sort of business perspective, um, you could be spending those three to five or 10 years, however much time you would spend per week on your PhD, learning a lot of stuff about the evidence around a lot of topics and be a really well-versed, well-rounded practitioner on training, evidence, nutrition, science, et cetera, as a whole. And that might actually make you a better coach compared to doing a PhD. Now, what I will come back to in general is that higher education, broadly speaking, gives you two things that independent study won't. One is it gives you networking abilities. So it puts you in touch with like-minded people or people who are doing stuff that you're interested in or other people who might be interested in similar business ventures, what have you. Um, and the second thing is it just provides you with the infrastructure essentially. And by the infrastructure, I mean, both the infrastructure physically of, if you want to conduct a study or if you want to um, do anything like that, but also the structure of, okay, well, here's the people that you want to speak to. Here they are, you know, you can speak to them. You yeah. can learn everything you need to. Um, we have all the resources you need to, you know, journal access, et cetera. Um, and that can make it easier. Now, whether that means that to you doing a PhD is worth it because of those, those two factors predominantly, and maybe the additional credibility and knowledge it gives you compared to just spending your time doing independent study, which, you know, no tuition fees um, more flexibility, as far as how much time you spend and sink into it um, more flexibility, as far as whether or not, and to what extent you want to work alongside it, whether or not that's worth it really comes down to you. And I think generally it holds true that the deeper you go into um, higher education. So from an undergrad to a master's from a masters to a PhD, to maybe even working in academia to an extent, the deeper you go, I think the stronger your why should be, or the more specific of an outcome you need to be seeking. If you're doing an undergrad for coaching, that's a very defensible position or decision to make. If you're doing a master, it's still reasonably defensible depending on context. A PhD, you probably want to consider the sort of pros and cons there are quite heavily. Um, and I think generally provided you consider pros and cons and the opportunity cost, and you think about, is this really bringing me closer to the end goal that I want? Um, Am I doing it for the right reasons? I think as long as you consider those and you go about it the right way, you can definitely do a PhD and it can certainly benefit you.
1: Yeah. Sorry, just to 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 touch on the supervisor comment or who you're doing your PhD under, Milo and I were both very blessed with uh James Steele and James Fisher, uh, not only being our supervisors, but also involving us in multiple other projects. So they were there are also people who are passionate about this. Um they involve us in many other projects. We got to meet a lot of researchers. I met uh, Brad Schoenfeld through James and James uh, by attending another conference. And if we had the exact same PhDs, the exact same title under different individuals, it it's it's very likely that we would be in a much different position now. So yeah, just I just I just wanted to express gratitude on there but also say that it is really important because i'm pretty sure everybody has heard horror stories about phd supervisors and and we we were very lucky um to have those two in our in our respective corners
0: hearing you guys talk through that also confirms that i'm glad i didn't pursue it at the time i was considering it which was many years ago now just because i would have gone in without that knowledge of like who's important as a supervisor. I would have just been going in there as like, oh yeah, I'm kind of interested and I think a PhD sounds cool and I want to get like learn more. And that, that's not a good enough why, like you said there, Milo, like it wasn't there at this point, maybe I could somehow salvage something there where I was like, yeah, this makes like good sense. But it's kind of like you said there, Milo, where like, I pursued growing the brand, revive stronger. Pursuing coaching career, interviewing like people like yourselves, and uh, now there's like the mass research review, and there's so much more information out there where you can get like uh, an expert amount of knowledge, like spread across an area to be a fantastic practitioner. And I think it probably was the right decision for me back then. And um, but for now, like for someone who's younger listening to this, who's just like getting into things, uh, they, those are, that's some great advice that they could take forward, and it's something I kind of wish i had heard um, many years ago because i think that will really help guide some people's decisions and i want to say massive thank you for you guys coming on i think it was a good discussion kind of talking about the different camps and where people can kind of find themselves in the middle there and kind of think about science critically and also some of the anecdote that they're also observing there so yeah massive thank you for you both coming on if people want to see more from you guys i know you've got your own podcast as well there's a great dynamic between you two. So if people want to check that out and they enjoy this, they'll probably enjoy that. So give that a plug. And then obviously your, your Instagrams and any like interesting things, if you've got anything more interesting coming on, I know Milo, your episode would have probably just come out before this. So uh, people are probably aware of the cool study you've got going on.
1: We've got the revive weaker podcast. I, I thought of was <laughs> that, that joke before we started. No muscle and feels is the name of our podcast. Milo and myself, we're both uh, or the, the two hosts with our respective well, Milo's cat mostly guest guests appearing because we shoot it over at his house. Uh my Instagram is uh dr double underscore p a k. Uh and I'll pass over to you, Milo. Thank you for having us on, actually, Steve. I, I should have led with that, but you know, typical selfish guest here, just <laughs> plugging himself in. No,
2: nah, I want to echo Pak. Thank you very much. Doctor Pak, sorry. Um, I want to thank you for having us on. It was a lot of fun. Um, I've got three things to plug besides the podcast, which Packeray already did. Uh, one is my Instagram. That's at wolfcoach underscore. Um, wolf is my last name. That's not, I'm not called Wolf Coach because it sounds cool. Um, then the second thing is my website where you can find coaching and stuff. That's wolfcoaching.net. And the final thing is for all my research output, you can find me at Milo Wolf on ResearchGate. If you search Milo Wolf ResearchGate, you can find all my stuff and it should be the first thing that pops up
0: fantastic i'll make sure that's linked below and uh i actually uh, when we were training milo i i spoke to my girlfriend and i was like you never guess who i'm training with it's milo wolf i was like he is the best name ever <laughs> so For a sports uh, science a phd yeah.
1: especially right
0: ridiculous so yeah guys definitely check them out and uh we'll catch you soon take care
3: losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Mini Cup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini cut movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.